0: All right, would you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 6? We'll be looking at verses 12 to 26 this morning in our continuing study of this gospel. I'd like to read it for us as we begin. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Let's pray. Father, we come to a passage where Jesus gives his sermon. And sometimes when we hear that, it is difficult for us to maybe understand exactly what he means. And so today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us, you would teach us, you would help us to see what it is that Jesus is really saying about discipleship and what it means to be a follower of you. And so, Lord, we just pray humbly that you would use this time to encourage all of us and challenge us in our walk with you In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, many of you have probably seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy, whether you've read it in the book form, what J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, or in the movie. And if you're familiar with that, you know that there is a scene in the Fellowship of the Ring where there is this unusual company that is formed, nine individuals who are to set out on a quest And these nine individuals are a very unlikely group. There are four hobbits who are part of this, halflings like Frodo and his friend Samwise. There's a dwarf named Gimli. There's an elf named Legolas. There's a wizard named Gandalf. And then there are two men, Boromir and Aragorn, the future king. And they come together in this secret council where they have learned that this great ring of power has been found, but it needs to be destroyed. It was a ring that was forged by the dark lord Sauron, who is like a satanic figure in those novels, and this ring was made to rule all of Middle-earth, but it must be destroyed. And they began to argue among themselves as to what they should do or who will take it or who should have it. And in the midst of that, Frodo, this hobbit, steps forward and says, I will take it and destroy it in the fires of Mount Doom. What happens then is that the whole mood begins to change and the other individuals step up to offer their aid. Aragorn will say, I give you my sword and I will lay down my life for you. Legolas says, You can have my bow. Gimli says, And my axe. And they rally together. What's interesting about that is that what unites them is their mission. From an individual perspective, they're pretty. Uh, unusual and there is this background information that really dwarves don't like elves and people don't trust men and all of these kind of intriguing things are on behind the scenes but what unites them in this quest is this mission that this ring must be destroyed in order to save middle earth and in the end they succeed I think about that when I come to this passage of Scripture because here we have another unlikely company that is being formed. It is the account where Jesus calls to himself these 12 men who are going to form a fellowship themselves, and we could call this the fellowship of the cross. And in the same way, there are some people here who don't quite get along and like each other. You have Simon the Zealot who is just avid in his passion to see israel raised up and you have matthew who was a tax collector a collaborator with rome and you bring together these disparate individuals into this one group and what is it that unites them it is their mission to bring the gospel the good news of jesus christ to the world and what we see, though is that there is another great difference in this company That this fellowship of the cross is not limited to those original 12. It is open to all who will become followers of Jesus. We are all called to be part of that fellowship of the cross and to lay down our life for Jesus. That's why it's important to study this passage and why it's important to know what it says to us. And so today the question that we're going to be looking at is... What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Let's take a look. The first thing that we see here is that as a follower of Jesus, we need to know our mission. What is our mission? And what is it that the scripture tells us? Well, we are called to know him and to make him known. That's to put it very simply. We are called into a relationship with Jesus where we are to grow in that relationship and get to know him better but we are also to make him known to others. In the parallel passage in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus calls the 12, it says that he appointed the 12 and he designated them as apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. They were to go with his authority. And they were given this assignment to bring this good news of the gospel to the world. He calls us first into a relationship with himself and then he sends us out with power and authority to do his work. How did this all begin? Well, Jesus knew that the calling and training of the 12 was crucial to the continuation of his ministry. So we see in the scripture here that he spent the whole night in prayer, talking to his heavenly father. I can imagine him going through the list of all who were followers at that time. Some 120 individuals that had followed him more closely than others. And perhaps that night was spent going through the list of those who were there and talking with his father about who should be chosen to be part of this fellowship of the cross. I think about that too in terms of my own relationship with God. Have you ever spent a night in prayer? Or maybe I could ask it this way. What is the longest that you have spent in prayer? You know, I've tried to spend a night in prayer, and usually I fall asleep somewhere along the way. Uh, There was a time, though, when my father was dying. I remember keeping that kind of prayer vigil all through the night as we each took turns being with him. But there are other times, too, when, like Jesus, in this example of making a very important decision, there are times when I have taken that extended period of time to pray and to seek God and to ask his wisdom. But all of us fall far short of what Jesus himself did on this occasion and many others. When the morning came, it says that he called all of his disciples, this larger group of people, to come. And then he chose the 12. And you can imagine that'd be like, say, we had a gathering like this this morning, and Jesus were here, and he's saying, I'm going to pick 12 who will be part of this original company that will follow him more closely and be trained and carry on his work. And Jesus, one by one, goes around and he names them and he invites them to join in this company. Most believe that he chose 12 to correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. God was forming a new spiritual community here in the church. And when it says he designated them as apostles, that word apostle means a messenger. It comes from the word that means one sent with a message. It's not their message that they are to bring. It's Jesus' message. It is the gospel. It's this good news of salvation that they are now to take to the world. They were to join him in his work. And their commitment would be crucial to the future of the church. If they would succeed in this mission, if they would follow Jesus fully, they would turn the world upside down. And so they did. Who were these men? Who were the 12 that were chosen? Well, we have their names there. Simon, who is called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee, and sometimes they are called the sons of thunder in Scripture, which makes us wonder if these men were rather loud and boisterous. Philip, who is the great evangelist in the book of Acts. Bartholomew who we believe his other name is Nathaniel from the other lists and comparing that. Matthew, who was also called Levi. It was common in those days for someone to have two names. That, That was just the way that they were known. And then Thomas, who we know as Thomas the doubter at the end of John's gospel. James, the son of Alphaeus. Simon, the zealot. Judas, son of James, who was also called Thaddeus in the other lists. And Judas is Iscariot. Simon Peter always comes first on the list. And Judas is always last. There are three groups of four. And what's interesting, when you look at these lists in the other Gospels and in the book of Acts, um, the same person heads every group of four. Simon Peter is the head of that first group of four. You have James, the son of Alphaeus, who always heads that third group, and Philip, who always heads the second group. And so we wonder if they weren't organized in some fashion as they would go out perhaps four by four and then two by two as they were sent to different areas. This company of 12 was broken down into smaller groups. We also note that they were chosen by Jesus. It shows his sovereign election in calling individuals to himself. In fact, in John 15, verse 16, Jesus will tell them that you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. God is the one who chooses who calls us into a relationship with himself, and our part is to respond to that invitation, to join with him in his mission. And we also see that they were ordinary men. And I've always found that to be a great encouragement, because most of us are ordinary too. Kent Hughes made this comment on this passage. He said that our ordinariness makes room for his Extraordinariness. That when God uses ordinary people like you and me to accomplish His work, He gets the glory. Because when He does and accomplishes His purposes through us, people know that it's not we, it's not our wisdom or skill that brought these things about, but it was God and His grace and His power. I like what Abraham Lincoln said once. He said, God must like ordinary people because He made so many of them. So if you feel pretty ordinary, you're in good company. You're right there with the 12 whom Jesus called. And we give God the glory for what he does in our life. And secondly, to be a follower of Jesus, we also need to understand our calling. What is involved in this? After Jesus called the 12, uh, he went down on that mountainside to a place where there was a level ground Uh, That's why sometimes people have called this sermon that he gives the Sermon on the Plain in contrast to the Sermon on the Mount. They are similar. Uh, The Sermon on the Plain here begins with the Beatitudes, and it ends with the wise and foolish builders, just like the Sermon on the Mount does. But there's a lot of material that's different. The Beatitudes are shorter here, and they include these blessings and woes that we do not find in the Sermon on the Mount. And then there's other material in Matthew's Gospel that's not included here. Well, what's the explanation? These sermons were probably given on different occasions. And it is not unusual for someone who is an itinerant preacher who travels and speaks to a lot of crowds to use the same material and to share that at times in different forms or different settings. And so here you have Jesus saying similar things to what he has said before in another place, but they are also slightly different. What we find here in Luke's gospel is really a profile of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you want to know what it means to join that fellowship of the cross, well then take a look at what Jesus has to say in this sermon on the plain and it will give you a good idea. To be a follower of Jesus means, first of all, that we are poor yet rich. We are poor yet rich. You look at verse 20 and he says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And in contrast, uh, he will say in verse 24, but woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. What is he talking about here? The focus goes beyond material poverty. The poor that Jesus are talking about are those who recognize their utter dependence upon God. It is those who recognize their need for God who will inherit his kingdom. And in contrast, you know, those who are rich who think that they have no need of God will be excluded in the end. You see, the danger of wealth is that people can have a false sense of security and self-sufficiency. They can be so content in what they have that they think that they have no need of God. But it is those who recognize their sin. Those who admit their need for God that will be welcomed into his family. And I think about that. Sometimes there are advantages to being poor because it puts you in a situation where you realize how dependent you are upon God for even your daily bread. Those who are poor know how much they need God. They believe that Jesus is the only hope of the world and they have put their trust in him. And what wealth they do have, they've given to Jesus. They understand that they are stewards, that we are here to use these resources for his glory. And they don't trust in money. They trust in God. And sometimes people don't realize how poor they are. There was a story of a father of a wealthy family who took his son on a trip to the country to show his son how poor people can be. They spent a couple of days and nights on the farm of what the father considered to be a very poor family. And on the return trip, the father asked his son, how was the trip? And he said, it was great, Dad. Did you see how poor people can be, the father asked? Oh, yeah, said the son. So what did you learn from the trip, asked the father. And the son answered and he said, I saw that we have one dog and they have four. We have a pool that reaches to the middle of our garden, but they have a creek that has no end. We have imported lanterns in our garden and they have stars at night. Our patio reaches to the front yard and they have the whole horizon. We have a small piece of land to live on, and they have fields that go beyond sight. We buy our food, but they grow theirs. We have walls around our property to protect us, but they have friends to protect them. And with this, the boy's father was speechless. It wasn't at all what he was expecting. And then his son added, thanks, dad, for showing me how poor we are. Sometimes we just don't realize it. And here in this case, it was the eyes of the Son who opened the eyes of the Father to see their own needs and limitations. We also read in this passage that we are to be hungry yet full. It's another one of those paradoxes that it is those who hunger that will be satisfied. Again, he is not talking about physical hunger, but more about spiritual hunger. It is those who hunger for righteousness who will be satisfied. Those who hunger for God and desire to know him better. In contrast, those who are well-fed now, in other words, those who find their satisfaction in what this world has to offer, will be dissatisfied in the end. And isn't that so very true that those who put their hope in the things of this world, whether it is in money or possessions or power or status, will find that at the end they do not satisfy. That there is something more that we long for, something more lasting. Luke picks up on this idea of this great reversal that's going to take place at the end of time. Mary, in Mary's song, in Luke chapter 1, talked about that. This, this upheaval that's going to take place where it is the poor who will be raised up and it's the rich who will be brought down. It's those who this world thinks are not very important, that God values. And it is those who think that, boy, they are the, really the movers and shakers and they've got it made and they don't need God, that will miss out on all that he has intended to give us. Who are the people who find ultimate joy? Who are the people that God blesses? Who are the people that God will vindicate and reward? It is those who put their trust in him. And once again, we see in our world how things do not always work out the way our world thinks they should. You know that even the birth of our country is an example of sometimes how the underdog can win, if you will. When our colonies chose to revolt against Britain, Britain was the world's superpower. I mean, they dominated the seas. They were strong with their military might and their control of such a large part of the world. I mean, it was true that the sun never set on the British Empire. And here are these 13 fledgling colonies that have decided to revolt against Britain. One historian said that it would be a little bit like a high school football team going up against a professional football team. I mean, it it, it just shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have worked out the way that it did. And yet, God was in it. And we read story after story of how these miraculous things took place, how God seemed to intervene at key moments, and how ultimately America won its independence from Britain. There is a great reversal that is going to take place spiritually in the end of time when those who are the least of these in our world will be raised up and rewarded for what they have done. Thirdly, the scripture tells us that we are to be sorrowful yet glad. Another one of those paradoxes. How can you be sorrowful yet have joy or happiness in your heart? You look at verse Twenty-one, and he says again, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And then down in verse 25, woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. What's going on there, again, is another example spiritually of how things are going to turn around. Those who are sorrowful weep over their own sin and the sins of this world. They grieve over poverty and injustice or greed or violence that takes place in our world. And in contrast, those who laugh now and care not for God and find their satisfaction in the things of this world will weep in that final day. We get glimpses of that. I remember very clearly the first mission trip that Gail and I went on to Ukraine uh, where we were part of a team that was going there and we had the opportunity to speak in some schools. We spoke at one of the polytechnic institutes in Kiev with college-age students and it was kind of an open time where they could ask us questions and what was interesting to me was the questions that they asked about America. They said... Is America, I mean, are you afraid to live there? It just seems like such a violent place where everybody has guns. It seems like there is this great wealth, too, that they saw. And they felt like everybody must drive the most expensive cars and have all this wealth and pleasure. And that America is a country that's focused a lot on sex and sexual promiscuity. Where were they getting those impressions? They were getting it from American television and movies. I mean, that's what they saw, and that's what they thought America was like, and they saw very little reverence for God. And think about that yourself. If the only impression that you had of America was simply what you saw on popular television or movies, you'd probably have the same ideas. And it grieved my heart that they had no awareness of the people who love God in this country. They had no awareness of what God had done and that that was really an image that Hollywood may produce, but that is not true of everyone. And we had the opportunity to share Christ with that group of students. But I came away from that thinking, God, tear it down. You know, it just, it just breaks my heart when I think of traveling in other countries where people have these images of a world that is godless. I think of Latin America where there is so much that is going on today with the health and wealth gospel and this false gospel, this prosperity gospel that is preached in Latin America, and people are being drawn to it every day. And they're not meeting the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who loves us and laid his life down for us. God, tear it down. Tear down those false images. Tear down those lies of Satan that continue to keep people in bondage. Well, what Jesus is saying here is that those who weep over their own sin or the sins of this world will one day be filled with joy because there is that day coming when every knee will bow and everyone will see that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And along that line again in this fourth example, we see that we are persecuted yet full of joy. Persecuted. How can people be persecuted and yet full of joy? And we see that in verses 22 and 23 and again verse 26. He said, blessed are you, When men hate you and when they exclude you and when they speak evil of you or when they speak against your name because you are a child of God. He describes here a progression. I mean, persecution can take many forms, but there is a progression here that goes from hatred to exclusion to insults, to defamation, all because of our faith in Jesus Christ. In its extreme forms, persecution leads to beatings. It leads to arrests or imprisonment or loss of jobs or loss of property or even death. In the United States, the persecution we feel is the former. It is the hatred. It's the name-calling. It's the insults. It is the exclusion or the defamation of character. Just this week in the news, there was a very, very clear example of that from an unlikely situation, perhaps. But earlier this year, Princeton University had chosen to give a major award to Reverend Tim Keller. You, Many of you, I'm sure, know Tim Keller. We've used some of his materials in our ABFs or Adult Bible Fellowships. We've uh, read his books. He's just a great pastor, author, theologian, and well-deserving of the recognition that he was going to get. They were going to give him the Abraham Kuyper Award for Excellence in Reform Theology and Public Witness. I mean, Redeemer Church that he has been the pastor of has been used to encourage church planting in urban centers. About 450 churches have been planted, not just in their denomination, but in other denominations, as they have trained people how to minister in the urban settings of our country. And it's tremendous the influence he had. Well, when the announcement was made that they were going to give this Kuiper Award to Tim Keller, the backlash came. Princeton is part of the liberal branch of the Presbyterian Church. And so alumni and others began to voice their complaints on blogs or emails to the school or pressure was being put on. And they attacked Tim Keller for his stance on traditional marriage between a man and a woman. He has written a book on that, on marriage. Uh, They attacked him for his stand on homosexuality, viewing homosexual behavior as sinful, according to what the Scripture says. They attacked him for his view on ordination. Uh, He believes that ordination and elders in the church are to be men in that role, as the Scripture teaches. I mean, basically, they attacked him for everything that we would agree with as biblical theology, sound theology. But in those... Blogs that were put out there and the posts that were made and the comments, they called his theology toxic. They said, How can we give an award to someone who's preached this toxic theology for over 40 years? And names were thrown out like bigoted or homophobic or he's a misogynist. And Princeton backed out and they decided to not give the award to anyone this year. Ironically to me, they still have invited him to come and speak at that event where they were going to give him an award, but they're not going to do it. But they had asked him to be the speaker, and so they decided that they would continue to let him speak there in the name of tolerance. You know, I think about that, and I think about this side that claims to be so tolerant and accepting of everyone can be so vile in their comments. And the way that they say things can be so full of hate toward anyone who disagrees with them. Tim Keller is one of the finest pastors in the country. I mean, he is well-deserving of this award. One conservative quipped in a comment there that, you know, sadly, Abraham Kuyper wouldn't even qualify for the Kuyper Award today. I mean, Abraham Kuyper was one of the uh, conservative Calvinists who, uh, for whom this award is named. And neither would Jonathan Witherspoon, who founded Princeton, and whose influence in the formation of our country was so great Jonathan Witherspoon trained many of our founding fathers who went to Princeton. And it was his theology and his conviction about the word of God that helped to give shape to our nation. So how do we respond to something like that? Well, it's interesting what Jesus says here. He says in verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Rejoice. Leap for joy. Tim Keller, you are in good company because that's how they treated the prophets who went before you. It's hard for us to do that. Sometimes we want to respond in kind. When attacked, we feel like we want to respond back. And yet, Jesus calls us to have this Christ like response to love our enemies, to pray for them, to bless those who persecute you. And I think that what happened to Tim Keller here is something that we will see more and more in our country if it continues to go this direction. We are a nation in need of a great revival. A revival in the church, an awakening in our country. And that will only happen as God's people live out their faith as a transforming influence in every area of work. That's where you come in. That's where all of us come in because God has called us to serve him in different occupations. And we are to be a witness in our place of work, in our community, in the fellowship that we have. We are called to be part of the fellowship of the cross and it isn't easy. There are gonna be trials. There's gonna be hardships. There's gonna be They'll even be suffering and loss. Sometimes you will not get that promotion because of your faith in Christ. Sometimes you won't be asked to join a certain group or association because of your commitment to the gospel. But for those who walk with Jesus, there will be fullness of joy. And there will be great reward. It's a reminder to each of us to count the cost. What does it mean to follow Jesus today? And we've lived in a society where there's been a lot of freedom and, if you will, even benefit to being a Christian. But it seems like that is turning. The world doesn't share our values any longer. And because of that, we are the ones who are viewed as troublemakers or on the outside. This world isn't our home. And through many trials, we enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, count the cost what does it mean to follow Jesus? But also consider the reward. And keep your eyes on him. And remember the joy and the blessing that he gives. Let's pray. Father, when we come to passages like this, we see the paradox it is hard to follow Jesus. Lord, there are going to be challenges that will come our way. But there is great joy. And I pray that we would accept that challenge and join in this quest, this mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Father, people need to know you. They need to hear your word. And so help us to preach and teach that faithfully and to share the gospel. Help us to live it out so that people can see Christ in us. Help us to be faithful followers of you. And Father, I thank you that we don't do this alone. You've given us your Holy Spirit who lives within us, and you've given us the body of Christ to be an encouragement. And so, Lord, help us as we join together to encourage one another as members of the fellowship of the cross. Amen.